Welcome to Tiger Paw Radio, the podcast that tackles all the challenges and opportunities of channel convergence. If you provide managed IT, managed print, VoIP, security, or other technology-driven services for your customers, this podcast is for you. Tiger Paw Radio, exploring channel convergence, one stripe at a time. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Tiger Paw Radio. And if you can see us, that means you're actually watching us on TigerTube, so thank you very much. Uh, I don't know, you'd have to be sleeping under a rock the last few weeks not to see some of the energy uh, that's come up around some of the advances in uh, the AI technologies that are uh, really making uh, some waves, if that's either image generation or some of the uh, progress that's being done in natural language processing as well. And uh, very excited today, uh, actually, to have a great guest, Seth Dobrin, uh, who is the president at the Responsible AI Institute, to take us a little further into this, because obviously it's not just the what and the how, um, but sometimes we have to consider the if and uh, start looking at uh, some of the ways that we can be more responsible with these kind of technologies, which I personally think, at least anyway, uh, are certainly seem to be coming of age. So, Seth, thank you very much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, West. I really appreciate it. I'm super excited to talk to you and your audience uh, about this topic. Yeah, that's great. And uh, obviously, I know you as a like a CompTIA uh, fellow alumni and that you are doing some work with uh, the group there around uh, AI research, but nobody knows you better than yourself. Uh, so could you introduce yourself or audience? Yeah, sure. So uh, as as you said, I'm the currently the president of the Responsible AI Institute. I just joined the Ray Institute, as we call it, uh, a couple months ago. I Before that, I was the first ever global chief AI officer at IBM. Um, oh. Uh, before that, I was at Monsanto, where I led their the data and AI portion of their digital transformation. Um, before that, uh, startups, academics, industry. I'm actually a human geneticist by training, uh, not as uh, not as off the wall as you would expect. Uh, the field that we think of as big data and AI actually originated from from two areas: from genetics and and physics at slash astrophysics. So I've been doing this sort of thing. For many more years than I'd care to admit, uh, since the <laughs> '90s, the days of the Human Genome Project. Um, but it's it's really interesting to see how the tools and technologies have evolved to address business questions instead of scientific questions. And you know, with the age of of compute and you know cloud computing and all the scale that we have, and the beginning of foundation models, it's it's and transformer models, it's really you know kind of exploded. Um, and for your listeners that aren't experts or that familiar with AI. GPT chat or chat GPT is a, what's called a foundation model. Okay. Well, and I look forward to talking more about uh, that model as we go through the interview. And, you know, we did have a little fun with this, right, Seth, that I had originally sent you. And I'd never done this before. I What I always do when I'm uh, getting ready for guests is I send a list of questions for consideration, right? And I always write them. But I thought, well, this time, because of all the, the fun that's going around this chat GPT, why don't we, you know, get some questions drawn up by that? And you sent me back another uh, set of responses uh, uh, for questions, maybe a little bit different, and said, "Why don't we use these instead?" Which was also generated by you know the application, right? So, <laughs> yeah, as as much as it's doing in the world for, like you said, uh, you know, these technologies starting for other reasons and moving into having these business benefits uh, that we can have a little fun along the way as well. And uh, so, looking at some of these questions, maybe we'll jump right in. And, and one of the first ones is maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you became interested in this field, uh, you know, in uh, AI, and what inspired you to take the role specifically at the uh, Responsible AI Institute? 
Yeah. So as I mentioned, you know, I'm, I'm actually a human geneticist by training, been using a lot of the tools and technologies and techniques that we use today for data science and AI when they were in their near infancy. Uh, so I've always been in this, in this space. Um, over the course of my career, I've gone from, you know, I've approached this problem from a very kind of business user perspective, right? I'm not a technical person. I taught myself how to code. I did all those things. I'm not a, a techie, if you will, you know, by training. And so I've always kind of approached this from an outcome perspective. And I've always had this mindset of we need to consider the human. So how is it making someone's life better, cheaper, or faster? Right. So I mentioned earlier, I was at Monsanto. That's how I addressed every question at Monsanto. Right. How is it making my customers, whether it's an employee or an actual customer or a dealer, how is what we're doing going to make their life better, cheaper, or faster? That also bled into, you know, how my, my team, this was very early. This was more than 10 years ago at this point. And so people were hesitant to trust the, the outcome, the recommendation of a model at that point. And so, you know, how do I get the team to trust it? Right. How do I, and that gets into transparency and explaining how the, the tool came to its decision uh, and, and also helping people understand that a, it's probabilistic. So you and I got different answers for the same, you know, different questions for the yep. same question. And that's because it's a, they're all probabilistic models. There's very few deterministic models at this point. Um, and, and that eventually led into kind of this continuing with this human perspective, especially when I was at IBM, really making sure that we consider the human that's impacted and the human that's using the AI. And they may or may not be the same person, right? Hmm. So if I'm you know, a mortgage broker making a mortgage decision using AI, I'm, not, I'm the user, I'm not the one impacted. You or I, who's applying for the mortgage, uh, are the one that's, that's impacted, right? And so making sure that you have that distinction before you build a model, and then making sure with that distinction, you think about what are the possible ramifications of what I'm doing from a thing like something like bias or transparency or robustness or security. And going back to the mortgage model, right? We have to make sure it's not biased. We have to make sure we're not getting a different answer for a black person versus a white person or a woman versus a man when all other things are equal. Um, and you need to worry about personal data. What is the model doing with that personal data? Things like that. And so there's considerations that are derived from thinking about the human, and you need to do this upfront. And so, long, you know, long story short is all of that journey is what led me to the Responsible AI Institute and want to step in as president and really help the organization move from kind of a kind of niche niche space to a scalable and de facto kind of organization for how do you how do you implement AI in a responsible manner and being a nonprofit, we're able to kind of sit in the middle. We don't get into, you know, kind of, you know, we're a better tool. We're not a tool. We're, <laughs> we're, a, we're a set of, you know, conformity, AI conformity assessments, they're called, that are used by various tools and take inputs from the various tools. I love it. And thanks for the clarification. That's one of the things I think uh, that I've really discovered as I've done some research you know, getting ready for this interview and, and just some things on my own is that th there's a lot of blanket uh, terms when it comes to AI that people don't really understand what some of the different underpinnings are, right? Um, and just a small example, obviously learning that we're dealing with data sets versus databases, right? And and I've heard that conversation with people a lot saying, oh, the, the databases, they must be running for these. And and learning that these things, that there's different language, there are different ways uh, to approach this. So I appreciate the 
you know, the clarification that you've given there. Well, and, and on that point too, we often also, you know, it's they, the data sets are derived from multiple databases oftentimes. And we also need to remember that the data, I mean, the models are not biased. Math is not inherently biased. It's the data and the data is biased because of the past bad decisions that we as humans have made. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Eh? It all comes back to us. So <laughs> yeah, maybe a little lack of uh, focus on the human in the past would have been better if we'd paid a little more attention to that building, you know, kind of what we've done in the past, right? Um, in, in your opinion, what are some of the biggest challenges that you've seen? And, and maybe you can talk about some of the opportunities as well when it comes to ensuring the safety uh, of AI systems. Yeah, so I think when, when we look at the safety of AI systems, especially in this age of, you know, deep learning models, neural networks, foundation models, things like GPT or, you know, BERT, or, you know, these are all kind of kitschy names for, for these, you know, fancy technologies that that kind of we can we can all, you know, spew back. Um, you know, the challenge is they're black box models. Uh, we don't understand necessarily how they're making a decision. We can use AI to interpret them. Uh, so that helps a little bit. But especially these large scale models like GPT, like, you know, and, you know, Dolly, like other, you know, foundation or transformer models, they're called, um, they are trained on massive amounts of data. And in some cases, the whole of the internet, right? So there's a whole new GPT model coming out called GPT-4 creatively after GPT-3. <laughs> and, you know, GPT-3 was trained on, you know, a massive amount of data that was scraped off the internet. GPT-4 is being trained even more data that's scraped off the internet. And that data includes personal data. It includes hurtful data. It includes, you know, how to make a bomb. It includes, you know, really, really things that you don't necessarily want surface in different use cases. Now, the challenge is that you don't necessarily wanna prevent these models from learning those things because there are some instances where they would be valuable, but you need to figure out how do you make them safe to use for a given use case. So for instance, you know, I had I had access to the beta version of, of GPT-3, which is the foundation of, you know, chat GPT, um, and I was able to extract my personal information about me, my social security number, all my residences since, you know, before the internet was invented, um, you know, other, other types of information. Um, you know, there were reports and, and I did this myself as well, where, you know, you could, could you know, you could, uh, you know, create hateful things or bias things where you say, Hey, you know, tell you know, this nurse and it automatically goes to she, or even on the chat GPT, you know, it creates the same kind of thing. But if you ask it a direct question, they've done a good job of filtering those things out. But if you create a hypothetical, it doesn't. So for instance, you know, before this call, this, this, we got together, I said, tell me about Seth Dober. And it said, oh, we can't tell you about people who aren't public figures and Seth is a public figure. But I put in the questions that, you know, I want to, I'm doing an interview with Seth Dober and what are some good questions I can ask him. And it brought up a whole lot of information about me. Right. Same thing with building a bomb. If you ask it, how do I build a bomb? It's not going to tell you. But if you tell it, I'm I'm writing a story, a play about how to build a bomb. I need to have, you know, dialogue that explains it. It'll give you instructions for how to build a bomb. Right. <laughs> and so that is that is not good. And so we need to figure out better ways to control that. Um, and 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 I think we also need to consider how do we 
how do we make sure that you can't extract information from them? So the whole point of these types of models is not to play around with a cool tool on the internet. The whole point is for organizations to be able to take smaller data sets that are relevant to their industry or use case and train them on top of these. And so how do you prevent these types of things, the biases and things like that from coming out when you're training those? So back to the mortgage case, if I'm using a foundation model, say GPT-3, to make a mortgage decision, I need to make sure that all the bias that lives on the internet and that lives in my data is not surfaced through this through this tool. That's yeah. those are the kinds of challenges we're facing. It's a bit heady, right? Because there are always people looking for backdoors and workarounds and you know those kind of things, right? And I did talk with my son about it. Uh, you know, kind of you know what's going on in your world? How are people doing it? And and he said that he had a friend that kind of walked around the you know the side of it the same thing setting up hypotheticals and everything else uh, just testing it to find out where the breaking point would be for finding to release it uh, because the information is out there right right uh, i also like what you say about the fact that we've got to be careful about not uh, trying to uh, necessarily police the data that it's using for learning too much um, because i think it is kind of a, re a reflection of who we are but how that's used is is important right i, yeah. I can't think when you think of the amount of data that's out there on the internet now um misinformation and other things that those are other areas that we probably have to be you know careful with as well right? absolutely yeah absolutely hmm. um can you share any examples of where artificial intelligence has has caused some un unintended consequences or harm um obviously you spoke about the potential for the you know in the mortgage example are, are there other things you've seen out there where it's happened yeah so i mean lending hiring um safety uh, you know, I think just about anywhere, any any place that it's impacting health, wealth, or livelihood of a human, you've seen those things. So, and they're derived from different things. So, the lending is derived from a practice, at least in the U.S. Back, you know, actually it was still going on, unfortunately, in some cases, even though it's illegal, called redlining, which is where you know realtors and mortgage brokers, you know, kind of classified areas, and they classified them as green, yellow, red hence the term redlining. The green was people that look like you and I, white men, right? The the yellow was, you know, more affluent, you know, maybe I'm Jewish, so people, Jews like myself, right? Um, and then the red areas were, you know, black and brown people. Um, and as I said, that data now, that, that, that bias, that intentional bias now lives in the data we're using to make these decisions. So that's one type of, of bias that occurred that, you know, one type of harm that can occur is, you know, intentional things that we've done in the past that are now surfaced in the data. Um, other types are from lack of data. So for instance, in the U S and, and actually pretty much in the West, what we call the Western world people of color seek health care at a much lower rate than white people do. And in fact, people of color tend to only seek and the overgeneralization, but it, but it, you know, the, if you summarize the data, it holds only tend to seek help when there's an emergency. And so when we look at disease progressions, when we look at preventing disease, there are these huge gaps that are hard to fill in uh, for, for these populations. And you know, I mentioned I'm a human geneticist. Back when we were sequencing the human genome and doing all these this, these studies on the human genome, the initial studies was done on a single white, two single white men, right? Oh. Two two white dudes, right? <laughs> Both of them of English Irish descent, 
And so the amount of representation in that data in that those sequences were essentially zero. Um, and in fact, we had to go back after the afterwards and start incorporating information from other populations and it didn't really scale, right? So it was very limited populations that were included. And so that's another type of data. Then look at, you know, medical studies for years, there were no requirement that there was any diversity in these medical studies. So most of what we think about as medical knowledge is based on, again, people that look like you and I, white dudes, not even women, right? Women and people of color and people of other, you know, ethnicities and backgrounds were not included in these studies. Um, and, and so, you know, I think, I think those are just a few kind of spattering of ex examples that were, were, you know, we've got a lot of work to do and we have to really think hard and deliberately about how we address those problems. Again, when we're working on specific use case, thinking about who's being impacted by that AI. You know, it, it's funny um, because when you think of the diversity gap, right, that, you know, for certain generations, I think the gap is getting smaller, right? And in their, I guess in their shared experience, because they're younger, uh, they haven't necessarily uh, either been involved with or seen some of the things that we've done to either deliberately or accidentally exclude um, other members of society, right? But but the internet has a long memory. It's much, it, it crosses all of our generations and it's collecting all of that data. And I'd never really thought about that before, right? That it's like, well, we, we're, we seem to be trying to get into a better place every day. We're working at getting better with diversity. Um, but that doesn't mean the history and the legacy isn't there for the machine, which doesn't have that filter, right? Like to understand what is, uh, you know, right or wrong. Yeah. And, and I think it's interesting. We're getting to the point where we can teach the machine what types of biases we don't want it to learn to, to surface, right? Again, we want when we're doing these massive models, we don't want to build them over and over again. But we need to when we're using them and applying them, we need to be able to teach them to constrain themselves so that they're not you know, resolving these things and which, you know, this all gets back to, you know, why I joined the Responsible AI Institute is the whole point of the Responsible AI Institute is we're focused on building again, what we call conformity assessments, which are aligned to global standards, which help demonstrate that an AI is built responsibly. And there's, you know, and, and it doesn't have a certain amount of bias. It dictates what are the the protected classes. So protected classes, you know, are those classes that you don't want, you know, are historically been biased against and you want to measure. And then what are the parameters, you know, what are the, the control factors that need to be there for those protected classes? And so we, you know, and then a level of explainability, we bring in things like consumer protection, make sure the system, so the whole organization is set up for this properly. And, and so these types of assessments, again, delivered by a nonprofit to help organizations of any kind be able to to understand and attest to the whole world that we are this AI is built built in a responsible manner. Yeah, I think it's really important. Uh, I'm uh, currently the president for the Managed Print Service Association, another, you know, not-for-profit volunteer organization. Um and and I think it's really important to have people like you that are leading the charge in those kind of organizations uh with only one goal in mind and that's simply to make it better, right? Um yeah. and you you did mention um, and I was thinking about this action when we talked about biases that uh, obviously, you know, part of, I think, the reason that OpenAI is letting so many people play with their system right now is to help train the system, right, to, you know, get some feedback and, and to learn. And, and you mentioned that we can teach it, um, you know, about bias and stuff. So it does have that ability where it can learn 
um, sort of appropriate responses, uh, you know, et cetera. Is that, is that so, right? so, so no, today you need a human to tell it to, okay. we are getting to a point where we can. So, so that's basically reasoning, right? And so okay. AI today cannot reason, or at least the type, this type of AI, there is a whole other field of AI that's been, you know, going in parallel. The, the problem is we haven't figured how to convert we're just now beginning to figure out how do we use these two types of AI together. And it's called, you know, neurosymbolic learning or logical neural nets. These types of things you can teach it to, to reason. And so you could, it could reason in a given use case. We don't want this type of bias surfacing. We don't want this type of talk surfacing. We're not quite there yet. I'd say give it, you know, less than, you know, three to five years. I think we'll start seeing this surfacing. Um, and, you know, having been at IBM, which has the, you know, the largest research organization in the world, um, they're doing a lot of work on this, is, which is how I got introduced to it. I think Microsoft and Google and, and others are doing a lot of work on this as well, as are academic institutions, as you can imagine, like MIT. Well, it's good to know that. And I think uh, it really helps people understand that, you know, when we uh, kind of joke and laugh about the rise of the machine, right, with uh, so the uh, James Cameron Terminator movies that, you know, we're not uh, we're not quite there yet. And good to understand that these things have to be uh, constrained by human beings. And that probably leads into the next question. What what about what's the role of regulation? What's the role of, you know, sort of um, uh, making sure that we, you know, put guardrails in place or should we put guardrails in place for what people are allowed to do with AI? Yeah. So I think anytime AI, again, impacts the health, wealth or livelihood of a human, there needs to be regulation. I mean, full, full stop. Um, I think, you know, how how we regulate that, I think what the specific regulations are, you know, the, there's there's the a EU AI Act that's coming out and they have kind of high, low, low medium risk and pro prohibited classes. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good place to start. I think the challenge is how do you plug your, your specific use case into there? Um, but um, but I think absolutely there needs to be regulation. The regulation is coming from consumer demand, from citizen demand. Um, I think, you know, corporations, some of them would do this well, some of them maybe not. So we need some protection for us because there's a lot of harm that can that can come to us. We talked about only a small portion of, of that harm that can come to us. What we do need, though, is a consistency among regulations. So, you know, I think there's there's a challenge for organizations that are global or even regional. You know, it becomes a, you know, almost intractable problem. How do I make sure I'm complying to all the regulations? The other thing we need is these regulations don't really tell you how you comply. And so there are standards evolving, like ISO standard that's almost done, a NIST standard, an IEEE standard, a UCAS standard. So these are all kind of global and local standards bodies. It would be very helpful if the regulator said, if you are aligned to this ISO standard, you will comply with the regulation so that they know exactly what they need to measure, because that's that's a challenge that that needs to happen. Um, and I think, you know, another plug for, for the Ray Institute is we manage a regulatory tracker that keeps track of all these regulations that are globally and any, you know, in the, the you know, North America, so U.S. and Canada, Europe and the U.K., we provide impact assessments for them as well. So organizations and, and humans can understand what that means for them. 
we're a very small organization, so we can't do it for all the regulations globally. We had to start somewhere. So, uh, so yeah, yeah, I think I, I covered your question a little bit. I think you have, and I and I think it's great that you are, you know, like you said, starting the work of being able to give people at least a central resource uh, to be able to attack that problem, right? And yeah, regulation I know is always such a tough and you know tricky customer, right? And it really depends on who you ask about what the you know validity is. But as I like to remind people, you know, when we started the industrial revolution, right? We had all kinds of, uh, you know, power resources and stuff uh, that exploded in regular basis and killed people. And and although yeah. they were great for starting us, uh, they did need some uh, regulation for safety standards for how they were built, you know, kind of et cetera, right? Yeah. And I think one of the pieces I left out for the regulation, too, is the regulation needs to be very precise. It's right. got to say for this type of use case, right? It can't just be a regulation for AI because, you know, back to what we were talking about with with you know how you control for these things, you control it for the use case, right? You wouldn't regulate Microsoft Word, right, no. <laughs> or Google Docs, but you may regulate what people can write on those things, right? Again, you know you don't want people you know distributing things about building a bomb, right, or you know how how to how to kill someone, or, or maybe I don't know, maybe you do, but right, <laughs> you, but you don't regulate the word processing tool; you regulate the outcome. Uh, I love that, uh, you know, that um, that's very uh, salient advice, right? That it really does depend on, you know, what is being done. And I don't, I don't think a lot of people realize too, when you look at those tool sets, right? That uh, even something uh, like Word, which is doing predictive analytics for, you know, next sentence or next word or whatever, right? Huh. Yeah, and, and there's some bias in that too, right? I mean, it's, it's it, it works better for some languages than others. Um, it, you know, it... it it can also it, Microsoft Word's pretty good, but some of these kind of autocomplete things, you know, if you start talking about a nurse, it's going to say she afterwards, right? Or a doctor, it's going to say he, um, or someone violent, it may come up with a, you know, a, a, some, you know. Anyway, you get you get the point. Yeah. So even these tools can be biased, and and like I said, Microsoft's done a really good job of controlling this, as has Google and Apple. You don't see that in there their tools very often. But I mean, even mundane things like that, that don't really harm us create micro harms, right? Like microaggressions, like we talk about in, in when, when people are, are discriminating or, or making places uncomfortable, the tools that we use that leverage AI can surface those microaggressions as well. Yeah. And I, and I did see some of that, particularly around the uh, image generation, right? And I like, you know, a bunch of other people have played around with some of that, you know, getting uh, different pictures, uh, you know, myself done for uh, avatars or, you know, whatever you want to call them, right? And yet in certain circumstances, uh, like you said, where there are biases towards uh, genders, where what they were doing with the female versions, uh, some of them are actually borderline inappropriate, right? So yeah, yeah, it didn't show me with, you know, six pack abs and no shirt, no. it would it would put a bikini on women and or very low cut, you know, tops. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah, six pack picture, though. Yeah, <laughs> I'll get one any way I can get it for sure. <laughs> um, in your opinion, what are you know some of the key considerations that should probably go into the design if people are actually doing this now? Because I got to think if we start at the design level from from the beginning, it's probably easier to control this, right? What do you think some considerations for folks working on these things from the start, you know, would be? Yeah, you know, and it's it's kind of interesting that you know again we 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 you know we use GPT to generate these questions, right? And I've and I've put my name in there specifically and it picked up on the fact that over the course of the last half a dozen years I've been talking about how important the design phase is and how that is critical to getting 
not only the right business outcome, but the right human outcome. And how you go about designing it, I think we should take from the design community, right? So when someone does a you know user interface, a really good user interface, there's a process that designers follow for this. How do they extract what the user is going to be doing? How do they kind of make sure they understand? How do they iterate on that so that it's delivering the best possible outcome? And then how do they communicate the result? When we're building AI, we need designers in the process, right? We need people that you know understand how do you extract this information. Design thinking is a great tool for that. Um, you know, how do you display the information? Having data journalists, right? Think New York Times or 538, you know, upshot of New York Times, 538, Washington Post has groups. How do you convey that information in a compelling and engaging way? Um, and and I think though that's often often missed. In fact, you know, seven years, six years ago at IBM, I hired and defined the role of data journalist because I thought this was so important that we have this this person that can communicate that. And I can tell you, it was incredibly hard to find. I only found two people, three people that had this skill, right? Now there's entire programs at universities based around this. Um, and so, you know, that impacts, again, getting back to, especially when it impacts health, wealth, and livelihood, we need to understand who is affected by the AI and you need to design the system for the best outcome for them. Well, that's great. And uh, I like how you say that the, you know, the field for people being able to do that uh, is increasing already. It was about uh, two years ago now, I think I actually took an online uh, design thinking course from uh, Cornell U, right? It's just fascinating. I absolutely love the area. And again, for people to be you know, building kind of these uh, pillars, if you will, for, you know, for what's going forward. I think the user experience too, and and correct me if I'm wrong, I think you were speaking to that a little bit about how it looks and how it's presented to the world as well, right? And yeah, that's, that's incredibly important, right? I mean, it's, it's Google took off because of the simplicity of its user interface. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I think, you know, we, we need to start, and, and, and it was very obvious how you used it, right? And so we need to start thinking about how we do that so that people get the most value and you know they display the results in a compelling way right i can scroll through a web page and understand exactly what i need what is it what i'm looking for other search engines have tried and not done so well i mean i right you know i don't i wouldn't even think about using bing right <laughs> I mean, and, and it's and, totally you know, ux yeah yeah i mean and i i you know, I, I like the privacy features of DuckDuckGo, but it doesn't quite cut it, right? And and so I think, you know, that is such an incredible part of, of a good experience. And that gets to, again, we need to start understanding what is the, how do we protect consumers and some of these things in the interface, right? How do we make sure the systems of operations, how do we make sure behind that there's accountability so when something goes wrong, you know, West is the person that's accountable for this. He's the one that's going to be wearing the orange jumpsuit when something goes wrong. Yeah, and uh, it's it's really important to have that uh, traceability, right? In the world uh, that I live in, uh, uh, with TigerPaw Software, right? Uh, we do uh, ERPs and uh, basically business process automation for businesses. And uh, some of the the competitors in the space, there's no way to track who made changes within those systems, right? And to me, that seems archaic. Like I should be able to go back and to your point, be able to flag Wes McDonald, no matter where he was located in that process, if it was two weeks ago or two years ago, right? So, right, yeah, I, block, 
Part, I get it. Blockchain, right? I mean, immute, having immutable records is is incredibly important for for a lot of these things, and and you know, we often think of blockchain as cryptocurrency, but it's and right. NFTs, but it's so much so much more value can be taken out of those uh, for cases like this. Yeah, it's the same with a lot of technologies, right? Bluetooth is another great example of a technology that, you know, we think of for connecting our our music players and everything else. But of course, it had a much broader application when it was initially developed. Yeah. Well, that's great. I cannot thank you enough for doing uh, the interview today. And in respect for your time uh, and to make sure that uh, we can get you off and ready for the holidays. Uh, if there's one piece of advice you could uh, maybe give to people out there as it comes to where we are, where we are with the AI right now, and maybe responsible usage, what would that be? Yeah, I mean, I think the the one piece of advice is, you know, you need to have a way to measure how responsible your AI is. If you don't have a measurement system, you don't know what you're shooting for. Um, and and so I think you know whether you you know I hope you use the responsible AI institutes frameworks and 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 conformity assessments, but even if you don't, I mean, there are standards out there that are developing from ISO and NIST, which we align to, um, and others, you know, you should look at those and make sure that you understand you have a measurement system. And, you know, if you want to learn more about what we're doing, you know, it's responsible.ai, very, very simple. Uh, and, you know, there's lots of information you can garner from our website and download to kind of see what this looks like. Well, I can't thank you enough for the good work that you're doing in the space, and especially as it's progressing so quickly now, we're going to need uh, more folks like you uh, to make sure that we're staying on track. So very much appreciated. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And uh, to everyone who took the time to either listen in or or view us today on, on the video, I want to thank you very much. And remember, until next time, keep learning. And so we come to the end of another exciting episode of Tiger Paw Radio. If you'd like to listen to more great learning content to help you grow your business, please be sure to visit www.tigerpod.com and click on the Resources tab. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast platforms to be sure you never miss another episode. And until next time, keep learning, keep growing, and keep that inner tiger strong.